worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. But you better hurry because there's only one line left open. Mike and Clint and Chick and Joe are already in front of you. But, hey, it's easier to get through now than it, <laughs> it usually is a little bit later in the show. But, uh, and Chris just says, no, that would take it. As you hear this, uh, you need to just wait until uh, you hear me finish one call, and then you can uh, you can jump into that line. Patty's got the fourth line right there. So, I tell you, it's Father's Day. It's a nice Sunday morning out there, and start off wishing a very happy Father's Day to all the dads in the world, whether you're a dad to your puppies and kitties or your kids or your grandkids. This is a guy's special day out there. We usually have the privilege of taking the ladies in our life out to uh, lunch or out to dinner to celebrate our day. Go figure that one out. But anyway, it is a fun day, and uh, we all need to need to honor the, the men in our lives that have helped us become the good people that we are. I've got a lot of things to talk about, but most important is what is on your mind. So let's just get started with phone calls. Uh, good morning, Mike. You're first in line. Yeah, good morning, Bob. Uh, happy Father's Day. Good morning. And, um, found something on Facebook Thank the you. other day related to related to uh, Father's Day about uh, if your wife's trying to get into an argument with you, you know, ignore her because she doesn't want to get you anything for Father's Day. <laughs> Oh, uh, my favorite line is still, if a man speaks in the woods and no woman is present to hear him, is he still wrong? <laughs> but <laughs> That's a good one. We say, good one. we say these things in jest. We, we, we love our lives and we love our ladies, and uh, it's, uh, it's a day to celebrate. What's going on in your world today? Um, got a very uh, unusual question for you this morning. Uh, I have a patch in my front yard that's about 20 by 20 that I filled in, you know, leveled it out even it out and everything uh, with dirt. And uh, before I did that, I had a mixture of uh, uh, Bermuda grass and uh, St. Augustine. And uh, so I'm watering it, you know, trying to get what was there to pop up. And it has, but uh, here's the question. Uh, the uh, Bermuda is mostly around the edges. And I'm curious uh-huh. uh, if any agricultural school anywhere in the world has ever done a study on why is it that this Bermuda grass has a tendency to shoot out more towards the sidewalk and the you know driveway instead of inward towards where the water is and, and the dirt? <laughs> That's always a good question, and I think it's too good a question for the universities to look at. They, they have to uh, dwell on insignificant things. I personally think it has something to do with the heat. Bermuda is a heat-loving grass. And the sidewalk, the asphalt, whatever, is always going to be a little bit warmer than the soil. But that's that's strictly speculation on my point from watching the way the Bermuda grows and the fact that the Bermuda just sits there for, you know, a month after all the other grasses have come out or longer. And then 
the hotter it gets, the faster the stuff grows. So that would be my, um, you know, my take yeah. on it. It's, uh, I think it's a reasonable um, explanation, whether it's the right one or not. <laughs> you, you do your research based on that observation and, uh, and, and see what you come up with. Well, it sounds uh, about as good as that. I, I never would have looked at it from that point of view. So I uh, uh, figure, eh, let me start with Bob, see if he can throw something at this uh, well, weirdness that it's I don't like, understand. Kind of like the old question of why is the grass always greener right along the sides of the road? And the answer to that, of course, is the water runs off the road, and that grass gets twice as much water because it gets the water from the pavement as well as the rain that fell down directly on it. But sometimes you have to ponder these things a little while before before you come up with a logical explanation. So uh, that that okay. is my without further research answer on the Bermuda grass, but I will pay more attention and uh, and believe me, if anybody out there has done any research, I'll do my best to find out about it. Fantastic. Thank you, Bob. You're sure welcome, Mike. You get out and enjoy your Father's Day. Thanks for the call this morning. Thanks. Bye. Uh, Clint is next. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. You know, I experienced the same problem with my, my say, Augustine. In what way now? In that it grows out it's away from the good point. stuff you give it? Right. It's, it's towards the dirt, it grows into the driveway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I personally think in some cases it's just the grasses attempt to irritate you. <laughs> and, but oh, it's a good it's, job, uh, along with the wind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, if you've got any little spots to fill in, those runners that decide to grow out onto the concrete into the driveway, they're sure easier to pull up and plant somewhere else. So, uh, But I, I, I think it does have something to do with the warmth, but maybe somebody smarter than I has a better explanation they'll provide us with. i got a couple of jack, jack 100 trees I planted in the past, uh Freeze kills a bat, and I'm trying to have it go back into a tree instead of a bush. But uh-huh. Not having much luck. Is there anything I can do? Well, about all you can do is, you know, just pick the strongest of the sprouts coming off. Now, these weren't very. Are the how, how big are the tree? These trees. How big is the trunk that uh, that it froze back? The spot that it froze back to. Oh, it froze back the first year I planted it. Uh, so it, it it didn't get very big until. I, Okay. Well, that's good. That's back. yeah. That that's good because it means that the shoots that come off the base of it are going to be much uh, physically much better attached to the stump than you know if you had a stump that was twelve inches in diameter. I'd tell you it's not worth trying to get it to grow back because that little shoot coming out to the side is always going to be much weaker. Um, where you have a relatively small trunk like that you can have a shoot come out to the side given time to grow it'll be as good as the original tree ever was but about all you can do is just keep trimming off everything except the one that you want you know to promote the growth of and eventually the tree will put all of its energy into developing that as this new you know the the scientists would call it a central leader instead of a trunk, but you and I still call it the trunk. But it may be a year, it may be two years before you convince it to stop trying to put out lots of little shoots and just to focus all its energy into growing that one. But I I would pick the straightest, the strongest, the one that uh, you know appears to be most firmly grown into the stump or attached to the stump that it's growing out from. 
and it's just almost a weekly basis. Don't let them get up to any size before you cut them back, or that'll just encourage them to branch out again. Just as soon as you see that that second or third or 25th little shoot coming out at the base, take your pruning shears and cut it off cleanly as low as you can. And what time of year and when do they uh, blossom? It's normally, in most cases, a, a late spring bloomer. A late spring, okay. Yeah. Whatever that constitutes in Texas, I get that that could be anywhere between January and June, but that's when uh, that's when you see them more. They're they're much more commonly grown in South Texas because they aren't especially as cold hardy. So I certainly have never grown one in Bernie. That would be a real that would be a real waste of time and effort. But uh, observing them around when I have the opportunity to you know be running down uh, to see growers in Corpus or something like that, that's when I see them mostly in bloom. I thought once they were uh, mature, they had a little bit of cold hardiness to them. You know, it, it rarely does maturity increase the cold hardiness. We hear that about everything. I think as they get more mature, they have a tendency to regrow faster when they freeze back. But um, I've never found that, um, you know, that, a, that an older plant really has that much more cold tolerance. Perhaps just that it's larger, perhaps that some of the foliage shields what's beneath it. But as far as the actual cold hardiness or resistance of the plants to freeze damage, I don't think you'll find there's two degrees difference between a young jacaranda and a, and a mature one. Is that the same apply to uh, new bark, no bark on an avocado? The rougher bark is very definitely more protective of the tree. It offers more insulative quality, and that's that's true of almost any tree. Once it gets beyond that smooth bark stage and gets to the rougher bark, it's much more resistant to a lot of different things, and uh, it definitely would add a bit to the cold hardiness, but again, not real significantly. It, it, it means that the trunk is more likely to survive, but the top of the tree is going to freeze just as quickly. Okay. Now, being outside these outdoor gnats, I love to come flying your eyes and right in your ears. Any kind of right. trap, like a June bug trap or anything to do to help control these things, because they're the worst of mosquitoes. <laughs> they are very definitely irritating. Uh, they will be, to some extent, they will come to the yellow sticky traps. Um, you may have to order them online. They're they're hard to find, and we as nursery people don't really have a good source to buy them. Uh, but the old sticky traps, um, you know, who knows why the insects are attracted to them. But it's just a, a physical thing. It's a, and I'm sure you've seen them. It's just a piece of paper that you just you peel off the protective cover, and it is just sticky as can be. The yellow color seems to attract them, and you just put them out in you know relatively inconspicuous spaces. And uh, you'll find they'll just get covered up with the gnats, and every gnat that's stuck to it is one less to uh, fly into your adult beverage or up your ear or wherever else. Are you talking about the one that you would pull from, like, a little firecracker-looking tube and pull it out and hang for flies? Yeah. Now, that one is, is made specifically for flies. I think it would probably work. But they also make them in, like, a 5 by 7 and actually an 8.5 by 11 sheet just like a sheet of typing paper or something like that that you can actually cut into an appropriate size i think the more of the yellow that they see the more attractive they are to the gnats so 
Um, I I personally like the ones that uh, you know that are flat, and I. I, I just find them easier to use than those old spirals that you hang out. I still can't believe why more people don't use the old uh, fly traps because those things are so effective at getting flies. But if you can find the ones that are just a flat sheet, I think that's what's going to be most effective as a gnat trap. I've never even heard of them. Who's the maker of that? Oh, golly. I've got a um, box sitting on my desk of some that a sample... Um, that somebody, a salesman, just dropped by the other day. The problem is they want you to buy 10 million of them. Uh, this happens to be uh, uh, by the company called Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S. And this particular one, uh, I wish you were here. I'd give you some of these to try. But uh, it's somebody's little cutesy idea. They're just called potted plant insect traps. And they've got the little yellow sticky part looking like a leaf, and they give you a... Uh, a plastic stake, and you attach these little yellow sticky things to it, and I guess it's supposed to look like a plant growing up. But um, you can also, they, they make them specifically as stink bug traps. Uh, and in the case of the stink bug traps, they have a little, oh, it's just a little thing that's maybe half an inch or smaller in diameter that has a pheromone in it that's attractive to the stink bugs. And uh, they're made to put out in the garden, and then uh, they always tell you put it at the edge of the garden, not in the garden proper. And um, and it, in that case, you have the pheromone attractant as well as the yellow surface. But I suspect you could just Google yellow sticky trap, and uh, you might find all sorts of things come up because they've only been around for about a hundred years. Uh, they're. <laughs> Well, that's because you're only 99 years old like me, or I guess if you were a little older like me, then you you remember such things. But um, they they're still effective. They're you know not especially pretty things, and when they're covered with dead bugs, they're even less attractive. But they are effective in getting rid of the things that trouble you. Just uh, put them out near where you you know sit or work, and uh, if you can put them where the bugs can see them, but they're out of your line of vision, all the better. I'm gonna have to give that a shot. Now, now, last question, my siblings actually I've got to eat a couple of tomatoes this year compared to last year. Uh-huh. But uh, plants don't seem to be doing a whole, whole lot. Uh, I had to wrap them with a the black netting to keep the chickens out of it. Is that of course. cutting back production a little bit? And, no. And, uh, how long no. is it ripen on the vine? The, the heat is all you're looking at, Clint, and it's it's like we've talked. Uh, plants have what they call the compensation point. That's how much energy they have to expend just to stay alive. And then anything above that they can put into growing and making fruit. And starting in, you know, early May this year, the compensation point just got so high, the plants are just putting everything they've got into surviving. And I know very few people that have not had, uh, you know, a, a much much smaller crop of tomatoes and much less growth. I, I would say my plants are probably, oh, a third as big as they usually are, and I usually grow a great tomato crop, but uh, everything in my garden is just, you know, is is smaller size, and I attribute it just to the fact that uh, the plants are putting so much energy into just surviving. Uh, if we could just get a break in the heat, maybe get a little bit of natural moisture, I think we'd be in line for a great late summer and fall garden, but Right now, there's not much of anything on the horizon. You think a little shade cloth would help out? You can give it a try. It might help to some extent, but, you know, not too much because uh, most of our vegetables do want 
a lot of sun. I wouldn't go denser than maybe 30% shade cloth, but uh, I, I think if you put up some shade cloth, you'll improve things because you'll cut down the wind. The wind is so desiccating to plants that uh, I, I think you get as much benefit from that. I personally like that insulate fabric because, you know, it allows plenty of sunlight through it for photosynthesis, but it's a little bit denser even than shade cloth. But anything that cuts down on the wind, that's going to help your plants uh, in and of itself. Well, good deal. I appreciate your time. If you don't mind, I'll try to stop by and mooch off one of those things you're talking about. Well, if you happen to be up that way, just tell whoever helps you that they're in a in a box sitting on my desk, and they can sort through the thousand other things that I've still got to go through. And uh, I'll hope that I'm here and get a chance to say hello. You uh, have a good Father's Day in the meantime. I appreciate you. Take care. Thank you, Clint. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Yeah, Joe, we better get a break in here. You'll be up next, and then Patty. Right now, I get to talk about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And I tell you, in all this heat and sun and everything, uh, your roof is one thing you don't have to worry about if you have a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof. Of course, we've still got that shingle roof. Yeah, heat is real hard on those shingles, just the same as extreme cold is, just like hail is, just like wind is. When you get a Southwest Metal Roofing System roof, you just stop worrying about the weather. You just stop staying up at night when they have a severe storm forecast. I've had their roof on my home for probably close to 20 years now, and it's seen just about everything nature can throw at it. As you've heard me say before here at the nursery, we got hail as big as baseballs and had only the minor, you know, smallest little tiny dent here and there. You can't even see it unless you're up on the roof down on your hands and knees. Southwest Metal Roofing Systems simply uses the best material out there, uses a heavier gauge material than most roofers, and it, they do a better job of insulation than anyone I have ever seen. Their roofs are meant to last a lifetime. That's why they can give you the best guarantee in the industry. That's why your insurance company is probably going to give you a discount on your homeowner's insurance because they know they're not going to have to fix anything. The Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof is extremely reasonable priced. Give them a call and find out. You've got lots of choices in the actual look you get, but it all comes with the best warranty in the industry and the best workmanship you've ever seen. Uh, the number, 210-822-6868. is 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing System. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Going to be Chicken Joe and Patty and Vicky and uh, can't believe my own my, my own writing here. Mark, I believe, is uh, fourth in line. But we start with Chicken Joe. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, uh, sir. I want to I want to continue our short discussion of last week about uh, plants and the blazing afternoon sun and the conversation point and all that. But yes, first, sir. I was planning to report to you on my total failure of trapping rat this year. Uh, I can report they don't my uh, they don't care for paydays, but Eleanor, my partner, told me don't buy them anymore because apparently we like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but I, went I... To, I went out to check. I went out to check the traps this morning. And uh, indeed, the payday was untouched. But I tra- I baited a uh, another trap with peanut butter, and apparently yeah. some of the rats still like peanut butter. Well, and, and that's a good. It. 
Yeah, well, that's a good thing. What I sometimes will do is uh, mix a little bit of uh, oatmeal in with it so it's not quite so sticky, and that makes it easier oh. to uh, easier to handle. I, I hate to, to tell tales about my youth and some of the things we <laughs> did, but uh, my summers in the wildlife management area, we actually would set out trap grids, would set out a pattern of traps, and you'd walk along just chewing a mouthful of peanut butter, oats, and a couple of other things like that and just take a little glob at a time and put into each one of the traps. And uh, it was an interesting experience. In this case, we were using live traps, and we were marking the animals as we took them out so we could cover, so we could determine how big an area they cover. But, uh, it's, yeah. yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've, Trap put many a bait trap out with the combination of peanut butter and oatmeal, and uh, really, really works well for a lot of different things. But uh, I think it's just all in finding the what your particular, you know, dwellers like. And I guess, uh, I guess peanut butter, peanut butter is a good thing around your household. So that's that. I would keep doing it, and even after you think okay. you've got the last one, keep one set just somewhere that your pets can't get into it because uh, it's that's amazing right. how many of them are out there. Yeah, well, I, I use those old style, uh, well, those plastic crates that are copycats of milk crates. Uh, yeah. A good thing to put over and weight that down with a big rock. So. Exactly the same thing we do around here. Yeah, yeah. Well, also, just real quick, uh, I find my friends are abhorred to even hear rats mentioned. But, you know, most people don't understand. If you live in town, you're seldom more than 10 feet from a rat. Yep. And that's a sad but true thing. And and I've seen mice. I don't know how they can do it. They can flatten their body out where they can get through uh, uh, under a door that's no more than a quarter of an inch off the ground. They are very, well, they're they're survivors. I mean, look where they came from. They traveled all around the world on ocean-going ships, and uh, they've been the causes of many problems you know, over the over the millennia, but uh, they also, I guess, they have a place in nature. They're they're great feed for uh, a lot of raptors, a lot of snakes, a lot of coyotes. Uh, they're just part of the food chain, as far as Mother Nature is concerned. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, now if you could just come up with a bait for rabbits, I'd really appreciate it because rabbits are a scourge in Denver. Well. You know, you could actually use some of that same peanut butter and uh, mix some alfalfa pellets really? in with it. Yeah, go to a feed store and get alfalfa pellets because uh, rabbits wow. absolutely cannot resist uh, alfalfa, and that just sort of binds oh. it together. You could you could mix it with just I think about anything that you could actually make a little glob out of it. But just get you know go go buy a. Uh, or a pet store, you can <laughs> you can actually probably buy rabbit chow. Uh, years ago, when my mom let us have rabbits for pets, so we we had the old Perina rabbit chow, and it was basically little more than uh, uh, alfalfa pellets. But I think you'll find that'll be one of your best traps for rabbits, best attractants. Yeah, but what kind of trap would you use? Were they going to have a heart? Oh yeah, yeah. I. I have a heart to me. I've I've got some live traps that are actually stronger than have a heart traps, and I use a trap that has oh it's wire that's probably the wires are about three quarters of an inch apart. You can't catch mice with it, but you can catch. Um, well, I know Roberta texted me this morning. She got a big raccoon in hers last night, or a small raccoon in hers. But uh, I like those better than the have a hearts because with the with this kind of trap. I actually put whatever I'm using for bait on the ground underneath the trap. You're not having to try 
tie try to tie it to a pedal or something like that because you know things like like alfalfa pellets you can't very well tie them down but if you just put a little mound of them there set your trap on top of it and then i usually put a cinder block on either side because things like raccoons will just go shove the trap out of the way but uh i find that to be a, a good way to you know keep your trap cleaner and it uh they're Many, many a critter has uh, become a visitor of my trap as a result of doing it that way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, can you say the brand of that trap on there? I don't, you know, if I could remember it, I would. I don't, uh, uh, I would try a farm and ranch store as the best place. Originally, a former shop teacher up in Bernie was actually making them in his garage and selling them through one of the feed stores that I biz- did business with up there. Uh, since that time, I don't know whether he's uh, retired from that profession or what, but uh, I've shopped around. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd be careful the chain stores and uh, won't mention those guys by name. But an independent feed store, chances are, will have a source of a of a good trap. And um, okay. uh, there are lots of different styles. It's very important, of course, that you have a shield around that handle because you don't want the oh, critters, yeah. critters to be able to stick a paw through and get at your fingers or anything else. It's amazing how many things I see that are obviously designed by someone who's never used them <laughs> because uh, I see traps who with handles on them that would put your fingers within easy reach of uh, fangs and claws. But... Uh, just, you know, look and examine them carefully. But I think probably a good feed store, a farm and ranch store type place is going to be your best source. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll go check it out. Um, okay, I know your time's valuable, so I don't want to dally about the uh, question on the on the use of the cover for plants during the early season. I've got most of my garden covered with lightweight row cover uh-huh. to essentially protect the the young plants from the blazing high altitude afternoon sun. Right. And uh, my dilemma every year is, you know, do I need to harden the plants off or not? I know the shade cloth doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, it lets a lot more sunlight through than, actually the row cover lets a lot more sun through than the shade cloth. But do you think, I, I usually take three or four days to slowly phase them back into exposure do you think that's necessary with the row cover i kind of doubt it but um uh, again a lot depends on the individual kind of row cover it uh, apparently it has some to do with color because uh there's been a green row cover very widely sold here and promoted as a frost protection that was just worthless in the big freeze and yet the insulate the white uh seems to offer a lot of protection so uh, I'm not sure exactly what it is, whether it's the material or the weave, but don't risk your whole yeah. garden unless you have a product that yeah. uh, that you feel comfortable <laughs> with. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, again, it depends some on the time of year. Here in South Texas, yeah, if I were growing things under much shade, I would gradually move them to the sunlight gradually. You're in a much cooler place where you spend the summer and uh even though your high altitude sun is intense it doesn't ever seem to be quite as burning to the plants so i very much doubt that you really have to do that but uh if you have time you're certainly never going to go wrong that way but i I, if if i was in the denver area i don't think i would okay yeah well okay well 
Uh, just as a quickie, I, it is the white insulate type yeah. row cover. Uh, okay, well, listen, I know you got a lot of other people to talk to, so I'll let you go. It's always good to talk to you, Chicka Joe. Okay. You uh, Thanks, have a, continue to enjoy the cool, and uh, we'll all pray for a little more rain, and you have a happy Father's Day. I'll look forward to our next visit. Okay, Thanks thank so much. You, okay. Certainly. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, going to get a quick break in here. I get to talk to you about Fanix, and uh, Fanix, of course, wants to wish all the dads out there a very happy Father's Day and remind you that they've got all kinds of things Dad would really enjoy. If you're looking for a great gift, uh, you can always tell them, well, gee, I didn't get your gift because I want to take you over to Fanix and let you check out their uh Traeger pellet grills and all those supplies. If Dad's into grilling, he'd love one of those grills that Phoenix is carrying now. And if Dad's the guy that does most of the work around the yard, you really owe it to him to check out the lithium-ion battery-powered equipment by Ego. Uh, Phoenix has a great selection of it. And, I, you know, I never thought that I would use battery-powered equipment. But let me tell you, the lithium-ion batteries have made such a difference and that equipment is so powerful i rarely start my uh, gasoline driven line trimmer or chainsaw you know i just i really like the quiet i really like the lack of having to have explosive gasoline around and i tell you what i don't think there's a dad out there that wouldn't appreciate something for me go and Phoenix has a great selection of course while you're there you should check out their crepe myrtles and their water saver plants and everything else but uh here it is father's day if you didn't around get around to getting a really quality gift that's uh, one place you could go when I'm sure you'll find something that uh, will make Dad happy. Maddox is open seven days a week to serve you right over there on Home Green Road, just where they've been for about 85 years now. That's Phoenix Nursery and Garden Center. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, right, right straight back to these phone lines, and it's Patty's turn. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I hope you have a wonderful Father's Day. Well, thank you so much. It's a special weekend. It sure is. Um, I have a question about a a patio blackberry that I have in a pot, and I would like to put it in the ground. When would be the best time to do that? About six months ago, but the second best time would be today. (laughs) Okay, great, great. Keep keep in mind that blackberries want full sun. And put it in a place that it can get plenty of water. Most people don't realize how thirsty blackberries are, but to really grow well, really produce well, they are one of the thirstier plants in your garden, but they will be much happier in the ground than they will in pots. Uh, that's what I was thinking. I, I'm sure it'll get watered more. <laughs> I'm Good. kind of ignoring it at times. <laughs> yeah, it's called a busy uh, life. Yeah. And uh, also... Um, Rutabagas. I, I wanted to order a, a variety. I, I'm not sure which one to get. And would I consider those a, a turnip uh, when I would plant it as far as planting time? Are, are you going to move about 1,000 miles north? No. Then I don't think you're really going to have much success with rutabagas. I, I Occasionally, uh-huh. if we get, they, they are a cool season plant, but uh, mm-hmm. even our winters here are are mild enough that rutabagas, I've never known anyone that really grew a good rutabaga. It's kind of like uh, rhubarb. You know, no matter what you try to do, you're simply not going to grow rhubarb uh, in our warm winters down here. So if you want to order some and just experiment, um, I, I would probably try 
Oh, maybe try Baker Creek Seeds. Uh, mm-hmm. They are not all the way up north, and they might have a variety that's a little bit more heat tolerant. And you can always sell, call and talk to them. They're some of the nicer people in the uh, in the seed business. You could also try um, uh, the uh, the folks uh, down in Divine, David's Garden Seed. David has uh, experimented with just about every seed in the world, and um, mm-hmm. I'm sure you guys don't have their number here. I give it to you, but uh, look at David's Garden Seed and see if he has any that he has found to be successful here. But uh, I've I've just not well. There are not that many people that even know what a rutabaga is. But uh, I, I don't know anyone who uh, – you probably haven't spent your whole life in Texas. You probably have experienced them somewhere else. But uh, um, Well, I did try to grow them uh, a couple of times, but it, it was only a fair uh, yeah. harvest, and, and I thought it was me, but I guess it's just the place. Well, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right about that. On the other hand, there are a lot of things – we can grow things in the middle of the winter that – Folks in cooler climates just have to sit out there and look at their frozen ground. So the price we pay, I mean, you know, I'd love to grow raspberries and blueberries and uh, mm-hmm. a lot of things, but I'm not going to trade my warm winters for uh, the ice and snow in some of the places that I visited in January that I love in the summer months. Yes, thank God we're in Texas. Amen um, to that for many reasons. Yes, and uh, two things. One, uh, uh, snap peas and beets. What variety would you recommend for those? I I have experimented on the uh, snap peas, sugar snaps, whatever you want to call them. And the one that I have found most productive is one called Oregon, like the state Oregon sugar pod. And okay. that one, I think, is fairly widely available. Uh, the old one that's just simply called sugar snap certainly grows and produces. Be aware that there is a bush uh, snap pea and a vining snap pea, so choose a variety that fits your growing area and your growing conditions. Um, the uh, Oregon sugar pod I grow on a you know on a very low fence. I actually use a piece of cattle panel is what I use to grow them up, and uh, they are. You know, unfortunately, the season that they produce is fairly short, but it's extremely productive, and uh, you can you can pick enough that um, that you'll have some that you can freeze for to enjoy later. But uh, that just happens to be my choice. I'm sure there are others that uh, will do well. And as you've heard me say many times, be sure you keep a journal so that you can tell which one does best in your unique situation. Okay. And um, and then on beets, uh, I, I've not had a good uh, crop of those, uh, although I do use the leaves all the time. But sure. um, what variety do you recommend for those? The old old variety called Detroit Dark Red is the one okay. that still I, I've tried growing the multicolored beets, the Chidori's, and uh, many of the others. But the the one thing to realize about beets is what you're getting in that package that looks like a big kind of rough seed is probably actually a capsule that has four seeds in it because uh, the seed producers, it's very hard to actually separate out the individual beet seeds. And this means you're going to have to be very religious about thinning them out because if beets stay crowded, you'll have all leaves and no, no root, so to speak. But a lot of the times where you're planting one seed, you're going to have four plants come up. You really have to remember to thin out three of them so the remaining one will have room to grow properly. Okay, well, that's probably my problem. It's so hard for me to thin. Oh, I know. But but the, the thinnings, 
the thinnings are absolutely delicious. They are not to be, you know, thrown in the waste can. They are to be rinsed off and consumed as one thins. And they are, I will tell you, there are various things that I like the thinnings better than I like the mature products. So uh, just, just taking the time to do it is the hard thing. One other thing that I will back up and tell you about growing your uh, your snap peas is mm-hmm. I used to always, you know, plant mine around Christmas, New Year's, and I had a wonderful harvest in mid to late spring. I had a friend tell me, well, you really ought to be planting a fall crop as well, and she brought me a huge bag of snow peas about the end of October just to prove her point. So you're always gambling with weather, but seed is cheap. I've gotten to where, if time allows, I'll usually plant one crop in late September, as soon as it starts to cool off a little bit, and then plant a follow-up crop uh, right after the holidays. And I, most years, enjoy the fresh peas over a much longer season. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much, and uh, you have a great day. And you have a great weekend, and I appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Certainly. Goodbye. I tell you, these commercial breaks are long enough that I have trouble getting as many calls in as I usually do. Vicki and Mark and Glenn, hang on. I'll be with you very shortly. But right now, I have the pleasure of talking to you about the Cedar Eater of Texas. And uh, I just love talking about companies that I know do great work every time. And let me tell you, living on a bunch of cedar-covered land, I can tell you how much better your land does when you get rid of that cedar. And nobody does a better job than the cedar eater. They cut that cedar off at ground level, which kills it effectively, and turn it into a nice mulch all in one operation. With the cedar being as dry as it is, as much of a fire hazard as it is, there are just multiple reasons that it would be a great time to call the cedar eater. They don't do any bulldozing or burning, so they can work 12 months out of the year, and they can take those uh, trees. It would be a 50-foot column of flame if they caught on fire and Got them down to about a four-inch thick layer of mulch, which is going to be great for your soil and great for the land. Cedar Eater can clear many, many acres in a single day. Obviously, the flatter the land is, the faster they move. Uh, If you've got cedar real tightly in among your oaks and elms and trees you want to protect, well, they'll just send in a hand-clearing crew to cut those cedars and drag them out in the open to where the machine can turn them into mulch as well. They just do the job right every time. They also have a machine that will take down big trees that may have died of drought or cold or oak wilt. I take them down safely and mulch them. Even have a machine that rips mesquite out of the ground roots and all that disposes of it. That's the Cedar Eater of Texas, and you reach them at 210-745-2743. That's 210-745-2743. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Let's get quickly back to the phone lines. It can be Vicki and Glenn and Debbie and Betty, and Vicki is up first. Good morning, Vicki. Good morning, and happy Father's Day. Well, thank you so very much. Okay, I've got just a real quick one question about the dreaded nutsedge. I know you've talked about it a lot, and I've used the molasses and water, and my question is, what is the best way to apply it? I've used a uh, watering can, and I've tried a sprayer. I know it needs to get down to the roots, but we've right. got a huge area in our backyard, you know, probably at least 25 square feet in diameter, and 
just the most efficient way to get down to the roots? What would you suggest? Well, the what you can try. I usually use a watering can myself, but I don't think I've ever okay. bought you know an area that's quite that big. There is yeah. a real very good device uh, that's called a siphon mixer that you okay. actually you hook on the hydrant and then they hook the hose onto the siphon mixer and the siphon mixer has a little tube that goes down into a bucket of whatever you want mixed into the water and when you turn on the hose it sucks the water up mixes it with the water going through the hose the problem with molasses hmm. is some types of molasses may be too thick to be effectively taken up so I would probably dilute the molasses like 50-50 with water and then mm -hmm. put it in the bucket. And that way, you're going to have to do it a little more heavily. You may have to do it two or three times because you're going to be, you're going to be diluting that, that molasses down a little bit more than I would normally like to. But if this is just mm -hmm. too big an area to think of doing it by hand, that's one of the few ways that I can tell you that there is a you know, is a faster way to wet down a bigger area. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would okay. try, and, and some of the molasses just is going to be, you know, my mother would have said runnier. Uh, it would have been mm -hmm. less thick. And if you can find one that will go through the siphon mixture without having to dilute it, obviously that's going to make it twice as strong when it comes out of the hose and therefore more mm -hmm. effective. Now, the good news yeah. is that when the weather's hot and dry like this, this is the very best time for killing nutsedge because it hates drought and hates heat. It's, uh, you know, it, it's a plant that natively would like to grow in a boggy area. So you're going to find it easier to kill and probably will not take quite as much molasses to kill it uh, while we're suffering okay. from the heat and drought that we're having right now. But that would be the um, best way that I could tell you that you could cover a, a larger area in a very short period of time. Okay. But we will sure try that. I'm I'm desperate for anything. <laughs> I and and it's sold as either Siphonex or Hoson H O Z O N. I think you'll find them at good nurseries. If not, you can certainly find them online. And they are they're great. What I use mine for all the time is uh, I don't have a big greenhouse, but uh, I've got a few hundred orchid plants in there. And actually, I started this back in the eighth grade, uh, growing orchids, and I was mixing my fertilizer in a milk jug and putting it out. And it took me two, three hours to do. I learned about these siphon mixers, and I could do my entire greenhouse in five to ten minutes. So if you have a wow. collection of patio plants or, you know, if you're wanting to fertilize your garden or something like that with a uh, liquid fertilizer, uh, it makes all the difference in the world. It will really speed the process up for you. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, that sounds like I'm something something I'm definitely interested in. And and if you've got a man in your life, you can run, get one, and give it to him for Father's Day, and you'll get to use it all the time. <laughs> I'll be out there tomorrow, today. Yeah, it's like the guy I knew that bought his wife a bass boat for Christmas. You know, what can I say? You've got to be clever about these things to get by in today's world. Vicki, you enjoy your weekend, and you let me know how it works for you. All right, thank you so much. Enjoy your show. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, only got about 30 seconds till news here. So, uh, Glenn, Debbie, Betty, you guys will be up soon as we come back from news. Hey, I want to tell you about a real special event going on next Saturday uh, out at the Alsafar. It's uh, a bunch of the different animal rescue organizations have gotten together 
and it's called Rescues United. It's going to be next Saturday from 11 till 6. They've got special prices on puppies and kittens. These are healthy cats, and the price includes uh, spay and neuter, vaccination, microchip, the whole works. We'll talk more about it a little later. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening on a nice Father's Day Sunday morning. Uh, Also Juneteenth, also a very important day in the history of our people and in the country. And uh, the reason uh, we have a national holiday tomorrow to celebrate that. So June 19th is uh, taking on a lot of good meanings this year and hope you're going to be able to get out and enjoy Uh, Spend at least some of that time outside. I know it's going to be too hot this afternoon, but not bad out there right now. Uh, Let's get back to the phone lines. It's going to be Glenn and Debbie and Betty and Paul. Glenn is next. Good morning, Glenn. Bob, good morning. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you, sir, and to you as well. Thank you. I've got a question about some okra. Uh, We, to try something a little bit different, uh, we bought a few burgundy okra Uh uh, plants. Yeah. And pick pick the first three the other day, and uh, you know the the paws were I don't know maybe about three inches long, something like that, and mm-hmm. they were the toughest, woodiest. I mean, they they pretty much were unedible, and I I just I'm curious if you have any experience with that, and, and you know we did we wait too late to pick them, or is that I I think we need to avoid. Well, I think you need to do two things. I think you need to water a little bit more frequently, and you need to pick them a little bit smaller. I've had the same experience. You know, the the burgundy okras, they taste exactly the same. I mean, if you put a blindfold on, you wouldn't be able to tell one from the other. But I've, you know, I try to pick try to pick them no more than two inches in length, which means pretty much daily picking. But um, they're, oh golly, I'm trying to remember. There are two or three different strains of red okra and uh you may just you may want to experiment with the varieties because uh i think in in general all of them all of them are going to be a little tougher if you a little stringier just like uh many of the green okras do but um i think if you pick them a little smaller water them a little bit more while they're developing you're going to find that they are absolutely wonderful they i I like them just because they make a prettier dish when you have uh, the purple and the green combined but I, I think it's just a matter of a little too dry and uh, get a little bit too big. Now, some of the green ones, like Mech's Big and some of those, uh, you can let them get a little bit longer. But all of them in general, especially in a hot summer like this, the smaller you pick them, the more tender and tasty they're going to be. Okay. Well, we've been uh, really pretty much just once a week really soaking them down good. So. Yeah. I guess maybe do that twice a week, huh? I do it three times a week. Uh, I've gotten to the point in my garden, and uh, I simply ran out of time. I don't have a crop of okra going this year, although I may still plant some. But okra is one of those things that I was watering every other day. I grew a big crop last year. And, uh, yeah, once a week is not nearly enough to produce good okra. Okay. All right. Well, we'll start on a little bit different program. I do have some. I want to say it's Clemson spineless that's that's up and up and coming. It's not very big yet, but but we'll we'll start watering them some more. Well, do it, and if you uh, if you find one called Velvet Green Pod, I've actually gotten to where I like it better than Clemson spineless because I think it is a little bit more tender. But uh, 
Uh, if your okra's out in full sun, believe me, it's gonna, you're going to get a lot better production and you're going to get a lot better quality okra uh, watering more frequently. And uh, give it a try and call me in a couple of weeks and let me know how it's doing for you, Glenn. I appreciate it. You have a good day. You do too. Thank you. Uh, Debbie is next in line. Good morning, Debbie. Hi, good morning, Bob. Happy Father's Day to you and well, every other father out there. You're very kind, and we thank you. Sure, and then I know you agree that, you know, even as a mom and it's Mother's Day or whatever, we're so blessed to have kids every day is a happy Mother's Day and Father's Day. <laughs> and my, my, my two four-legged girls are, are at my feet as we're speaking here. That's one of the fun <laughs> things that uh, they threw us out of the radio station when COVID started, and I'm getting used to broadcasting here at the nursery, and our our operations manager asked me a while back, said, do you want to come back to the station we've opened up again? And I said, "Uh, well, let's see. I can look out this back window at pretty plants and pretty girls and pretty weather. Back in the studio, I get to look at three blank walls and an engineer on the other side of a glass panel. So, uh, yeah, I'm thankful every day. And uh, so. Exactly. Amen to that, because I actually, because of COVID, have been grounded for over two years, and I get to overlook our family farm every day and just, you know, am thankful to be living this side of heaven. So no Isn't doubt. that the truth? No Very doubt. good. Very good. Well, okay, how can so, I help you today? Well, you know, uh, those cutting ants, the cut ants, they're really great yep. when they're on the side of a tank and they're just keeping everything trimmed down. But when they get on the back porch and decimate a plant, then, you know, it's like, oh, no. Yeah. So um, is it, what can I do for that? Do you know where the mound is? Uh, no, I need I need to find it. But, yeah, I'll, I'll find it, and then what do I do once I find it? Well, there are a couple of things, and not everybody has the same success with the same attack plan, so to speak. Okay. If you can, okay. If you can find it and if it's nearby – I know a lot of people who have simply flooded them out and totally gotten rid of them because you have to remember wow. their their ecology, their biology, is they're not eating those leaves. They've got a big underground chamber, and they're putting those leaves in there, and what the ants are actually eating is a fungus that grows on the leaves. And, yes, I Googled that. I was amazed. I almost yeah. felt bad for being mad at them for decimating my plant because, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a cycle of life. It's nature. It's incredible. So go well, ahead. But so I can along, flood them out. You can flood them out. Many people will put a little bit of spinosad in the water, and it seems to work okay. even more effectively. Okay. But we're having, okay. we're having a lot of reports from people now that the same material that we use as a bait for snail slugs and pill bugs, uh, this product is called Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O, Sluggo Plus. It's important that you don't get okay. the original Sluggo. It's just iron phosphate. But Sluggo Plus, they've added spinosad to it. And I've had several okay. people... Uh, point out to me that it is uh, there's another product that has exactly the same ingredient sold at a lot higher price uh, that is sold for cut ants but I've talked to a number of people who are just putting out the Sluggo Plus uh, in where the ants will find it. You don't want to make it too obvious. You don't want to just shake it right on top of them because yep. uh, many times they'll see that as a bad thing And uh, but if you put it near their trail, if you put them in a place where they can find it uh, a lot of people are finding that they're wiping out the colonies with Slogo Plus, so that's worth Beautiful. a try. But but awesome. if you you know if that doesn't do the job, or if you want to do it with things you have on hand, uh, find the mound, 
Uh, flood it out, add a little bit of soap to it, add a little bit of spence head to it, and uh, you should be you should have the problem under control very quickly. Super califragilistic. Thank you so much. <laughs> have a great day. You did the same, Debbie. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. Uh, bye. Okay. Next in line is Betty. Good morning, Betty. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, my goodness. I have been asked to take care of a neighbor's plants while she's out of town for three weeks. Okay. And my main concern is hydrangeas in a pot. Uh-huh. And they I don't sure... know whether to keep them consistently moist, let them dry between waterings. I mean, as hot as it is, they're probably going to dry out every day anyway. Are they in the house or are they out on a porch? Out in the shade in her front yard under some trees. And are they in pots or in the ground? In pots. You're going to have to water them every day. You'll be lucky if you don't have to water them twice a day. They are the thirstiest. Oh, my gosh. Well, they're the I think thirst, kind of figured that was plants. what I was in for. Yep. They're, they're the thirstiest plants out there, and if you miss a day, they will just look like they melted. Uh, they'll generally oh. bring back up when you water, but... That is that is the thirstiest, that's truly the thirstiest plant I can think of. They're absolutely beautiful, and being outside right. in the shade is, is the place to be, but uh, you're going to need to water them thoroughly on a daily basis to have them pretty much oh. back to town. <laughs> Should I um, put some uh, fertilizer, some uh, has-to-grow plant in the water, or just oh. leave them alone and just do water? Oh, they, they would love it if you put a little has-to-grow plant in. Everything, everything would. But uh, chances are, if she has a collection of plants, until you really get used to them, you're going to have to individually feel the soil in every one. Hydrangeas, I'll take the guesswork out. Just water them every day. day. That's what they really want. But most other things, uh, the secret is to water very, very thoroughly. Let the soil get good and dry on the surface and then water very thoroughly once again. And that will do for 95% of the house plants out there. But uh, hydrangeas are just water hogs. Yeah, and that's my concern. The others are just everyday airplane plants and things like that that I'm familiar with. But, okay, well, uh, wish me luck. <laughs> oh, I think you'll do well. Are are these the big colorful hydrangeas, the pinks? I and think the... they're not blooming very well this year, but they are blooming and, you know, have the big uh, pink flowers. Yeah, if if anybody is thinking of planting hydrangeas and you want one that is a little more drought tolerant, there is right. a kind of hydrangea that they call oak leaf, Alice oak leaf. There are three or four varieties that get by without as much water, but they don't have the super colorful flowers. They have a an unusual flower, and it's like a few of the little flowers open at a time. It's a, a group we call yeah. lace cap hydrangeas. But what you are charged with taking care of are good old standard southern hydrangea and uh, you're never going to find it on the Saws Water Saver plant list. I'll promise you that. It's, and, That's uh, why I've never even tried to mess with them because, I, you know, I just know that they're not easy. But I got this challenge coming up. So well, anyway. Now, you may be the one going on vacation next time, and you'll want him or her to water your plants. But, uh, no, you're, you'll yes, do fine with okay. the hydrangeas. But, but don't, even, don't even feel the soil on those. Just water them every day. Okay, good. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye, Debbie. All right, our, our Betty Rather. I 
Now I've got to get a break in here. Paul, you will be up next, but uh, at this point, I do need to pause for a moment and talk about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. You know, this is a challenging year for everybody out there, even plant professionals, and I deal with a lot of them. They're seeing things that are just hard to understand, and uh, going from a super cold winter to a pretty cold winter to a super hot, super dry summer, you're challenged to really keep your landscape in good shape. Well, if you need somebody to look things over with you, to tell you things you can do, to perhaps do some compost tea applications that will really help things get through the heat, well, Sam Sitterly is your guy. Green Grow Organics is his company, and for well over 30 years now, he's been helping people always organically have the best and most beautiful yards around. Some things he does himself, he can do a lot of fertilizing, he does a lot of compost tea application, but he's not the guy that's going to trim your shrubs or mow your lawn for you. He is your consultant to be there at your elbow, telling you what it will take to make your yard absolutely the most beautiful in the area. Uh, if it sounds good to you, well, go to its website, which is Green Grow, spelled out, G-R-O-W, GreenGrowOrganics.com. Take a look at the services. Take a look at all the beautiful landscapes out there. And if you like, give them a call, set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front. But there are an awful lot of people with beautiful yards who will give all the credit to Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening, and uh, Paul and Judy are going to be my next two callers, and I actually have a couple of open lines, so uh, if you've been trying to get through and get in a busy signal, it'll be a good time to dial, and like I say, Paul is up next. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. How y'all doing today? Off to a good start. How about yourself? Same, same, same. I have a couple questions about corn water tea and compost tea. Yes, sir. Uh, I make the the corn water tea just, you know, for my garden and also for my feet. And then I make a 55-gallon drum of compost tea at a time. Mm -hmm. And I normally use rainwater. Well, we ain't got much of that around here lately, but I am available to get San Antonio water. Sure. And as you know, this stuff ain't fit to drink. But what kind of effects is, I mean, I can get the chlorine off of it, but, you know, hey, we got fluoride, too. And yeah. what kind of effect does the water in San Antonio have on, you know, developing good compost tea or good corn water tea? Now, when you say compost tea, are you actually bubbling it? Or are you adding oxygen and some other nutrients? Or are you doing more of a compost leachate, which just means... No, I'm, I'm bubbling it with other nutrients. Okay. okay. Um There are things in that water that will reduce the microbial diversity, so to speak. And probably, well, other than going, I mean, if you had reverse osmosis or something like that, that's going to give you the cleanest water. Uh, Second in line of effective things would be to go to a pet store and get some of the materials that they, you know, sell to put in uh, water that you have tropical fish in to take out the chlorine, and I think it takes out the fluoride and some of the other things as well. In actuality, you're looking at a potential, so far they have identified over 20,000 different kinds of beneficial bacteria and something like 14,000 different kinds of beneficial fungi that you're going to have in a really good brood compost tea. And if the crud in your water kills out half of them, then you've still got one heck of a good nutrient broth to put out for your plant. So uh, I would do everything you can. Probably chlorine 
or the chloramine, which is what a lot of uh, uh, drinking water systems are using now, those are by far the two most toxic. Fluoride, yes, it'll give you some leaf burn, it'll give you some root burn if it's uh, excessive, but it's still, they're still just putting a very small amount in. Um, but if you get rid of the chlorine and the, flu and the uh, chlor, well, you get rid of the chlorine either with uh, uh, the just, you know, letting it out get gas. If they're using the chloramine, uh, those fish drops will take care of it. And if you take care of the chlorine and chloramine, uh, your water's probably going to be, you know, 95% clean for making your compost tea. Okay. And I'll tell you one, one other thing, one other source you can consider uh, if if your air conditioning system is running all day, like most of them are, if you have a way to collect the condensate from your air conditioner, that is basically pure distilled water. And that is uh, close to being as good as rainwater. Here at the nursery, we just put a, we've got the drip from one of our two systems, comes out about uh, 12 inches up on the wall, and we just put a bucket under it, and that's what we use to fill our fountains and things like that. It also keeps us legal when SAWS comes along and says, oh, you can't, you can't run your fountains anymore. Well, if we're using condensate or rainwater, we can do anything we want to with it. And condensate water, you will be truly surprised. I'm sure, oh, I would say on an average day, we get close to five gallons of water um, out of uh, our, just the one AC system where it's easy to collect the condensate, and that might be a good source of water for you. That's a good idea. Very good idea. Uh, one other question on the compost tea. Uh, yeah. I, I brew in a in a fifty five gallon drum, you know, so you know forty five fifty gallons at a time. Right. And uh, I use most of it, but I pass it along to neighbors and family as well when I brew some. Uh, but when I use a lot in my garden, of course, I've been doing it by you know hand buckets and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I've searched around looking for some type of a pump system or distribution system and you know a lot of a lot of miscommunication a lot of diversity on you know what's the best kind of pump to use that's not killing everything well is there a good method to deliver it or just stay with the buckets they've they have determined and this is by people who are you know putting it on acreage and using a you know fairly high pressure that I think you can go up to 200 pounds per square inch and still the majority of your microbes are fine with it. So um, most of them you can deliver it with any kind of pump you like. Now the one thing that that will harm and um, you know that it, even in a hose-in sprayer you can do some damage with it, but your long chained Fungi. Uh, we have, you know, actually three different basic groups of fungi out there: the Ascomycetes, Myxomycetes, and Basidiomycetes. If I remember my old plant morphology course correctly, and the first two are largely single-celled organisms that, uh, you know, don't don't really care how you put it out. But some of your longer, what we would call filamentous um, fungi, they can be broken up. They can be damaged, uh, you know, in a higher pressure situation. So. It sort of, do you want to have good compost tea or great compost tea? If you want to have the best possible compost tea, you're going to go on doing it in the buckets like you're doing now. Um, if your schedule in life says you just don't have time to do that, then you could use just about any kind of pump and still deliver your compost tea effectively, but you are just 
skimming a little bit off the top. It's not going to like being handled that way. Of course, that's the same thing in, uh, you know, in the way you, you make your compost and the way you make your compost tea. These long-chain fungi are the ones that are hardest to protect, and yet where you're looking for things that are, if you're looking really to decompose leaves and organic material, the filamentous fungi are very, very important. If you're looking for disease control, the micronutrient availability, uh, not as critical there. So I haven't answered your questions, but I hope I've given you more information uh, to help you make your decision of what's going to work best for you. Absolutely. Well, time's important. Like I said, I want the best I can get, but, you know, I still have to work and pay for yep. all this stuff. So, like I said, it, time time is, is, is an important so Well, I, 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 I like... Lot. I like to paraphrase the old, you know, our parents and grandparents used to say that uh, drink is the curse of the working class. I understand many years ago that was a very common phrase. Well, my my phrase is uh, work is the curse of the drinking class. <laughs> so, but but we still have to do a lot of it. My, my answer to you would be real simple. If you have the time to do it, Paul, go and put it on with the buckets uh, on the days that you simply don't have time to do that. Rig up a good pump system. There are lots of good ones out there. Get a good pump, but um, you're you're not going to reduce the quality of your tea significantly. Very good. Well, all right, Mr. Bob, you all have a great Father's Day and a great weekend, and we'll holler at you next time. You do the same. I'll look forward to it. Thank you. All right. Oh, Judy, hang on a second. How did it get to be 930? That means that I need to do a, a spot here, but on the bright side, I get to talk about Rhonda's Nature's Way. Rhonda's has made such a difference in the life of so many people, and I'm proud to say some of them I've sent her way, and I happen to be one of those people that I truly think that uh, she has really helped me with lots of things. You know, as you age, some, some things just hurt more and get stiffer, and uh, and it's just that we as we age, we tend to have more little aches and pains, I guess would be the best way to put it. And I just simply believe that, uh, you know, following a good good regimen of supplements, good vitamins, good immune support, it just can make all the difference in the way you feel. And uh, I let's just say I outwork people that are a lot younger than me. And I, I give a lot of credit to Rhonda and the things that she has helped me learn and understand. And she has absolutely the best when it comes to vitamins and supplements, uh, far better than you're going to find on a grocery store shelf or a chain pharmacy. And she does her research. She has some new things. She has, even has a newer product out there that has been shown very effective and studied in Germany for years, but you never hear about it here, that can really knock down your A1C, can really lower that blood sugar that your doctor's concerned about. It's so effective that in some studies, people have been able to cut way back on their diabetes medicine, their insulin, and in some cases, eliminate it completely. You know, back when COVID started, I said to myself, you know, what is the number one suppressant of the immune system? It's refined sugar. Well, I took refined sugar out of my diet and started adding some of the good support, immune support factors that I got from Rhonda. And let's just say it's worked extremely well for me. I just, I, I believe in what she does and I've seen the results. And uh, one of the guys that works for us went over to uh, get some help with a pain issue he was having. He said, she gave me something. Pain went away, and it hasn't come back. I think it was one of the curcumin products. But Rhonda's, 
they, they have things that really work over there, and they have the knowledge to help you with them. Now, they're closed today. You can't rush out to Rhonda's on Sunday because they're probably in church right this minute as we speak. But Monday through Saturday, I'm not sure if they're open uh, for Juneteenth weekend or not. You'll just have to call and check and see if they're open tomorrow. But normally, the stores, most stores are open Monday through Saturday. Southside stores on Southwest Military, Northside store in the center there at I-10 in Callahan. And by the way, she's still looking for... Uh, you know, a, an employer to for some part-time work. If you want to learn and earn at the same time, be just one more reason to go see my friends at Rhonda's Nature's Way. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. It's going to be Judy and Thomas and Omar and Ethan. Judy is up first. Good morning, Judy. Hi, Bob. Hi there. I need help with Gulfstream Nandinas. Okay. They were planted about uh, early in 2020. They're under uh, eaves, and they're I want them for you know good foundation plants. Right. They, they get full morning morning sun, and of course they went through the freeze. And basically, right. they're just sitting there. Yep. They haven't really grown very much. Um, I have fed them. I've uh, gave them, um, oh, Super Thrive, you know, after the freeze. In fact, I gave them Super Fr- uh, Thrive again last month. Right. And I don't know any help. Well, Gulfstream's not my favorite variety of Nandina. If you plant more... Plant the old compact Nandina. It grows about the same size as Gulfstream, and I've found it to be a much more vigorous plant than Gulfstream. How tall does it get? uh, About four feet, maybe five feet. Okay, okay. That's what uh, I need. Yeah, I, I again, I have just found that Gulfstream does not perform well. It's not as bad as the. you know, is that that purple one with the curly leaves? But uh, best you can do a good mulch, regular water. I would feed it regularly. I'd probably be using a liquid fertilizer in addition to a dry fertilizer. And Gulfstream will eventually grow and fill out. But it's just, you know, it's just comparing a fairly vigorous plant to a bit of a wimpy plant. Now, none of the Nandinas grow really fast. Some of them are slower than others, but. Um, you're on the right track. Uh, I just would feed a little bit more often. Be sure you're watering them at least weekly with a very thorough, deep watering. Uh, but they are they are a plant that just simply takes a bunch of patience. And in my experience, they're always a little bit yellower. They don't have that good, dark, lush green color that I like to see in an Andina. But that's just kind of characteristic of that particular variety. Okay, so beside the compact, uh, do you have another favorite? I only want it to be about four feet tall well it's easy enough to prune you can keep uh um you can keep them at four feet we have one and i'd actually honestly have to go out and look at it to tell you the name which i which i will do or if you want to come by we've got a bunch of them planted in our parking lot they were a uh, a a release by monrovia which of course coming out of california made them a little bit more expensive but they have saved beautiful plants at about three and a half feet uh, just because of the price, because of the slowness, it's one that we decided not to keep carrying on a long-term basis here at the nursery. But uh, next time I head out that way, I will uh, take a look at that and see which variety it is. But that is, it's a beautiful plant, but it took them, 
took them probably five years to get to where they made a really dense hedge, but I don't think we've ever had to prune them, and they stopped growing at about three and a half feet. But quite honestly, to get something that looks nice more quickly, I'm just going to plant the compacts, and I'm going to trim them once a year if I have to. And the way you trim them, you don't go through and just, you know, cut the, every one of them back like you would boxwood or Yopan holly or something like that. You just go through and take out the tallest of the canes and let the lower ones grow and fill in. And it's not that much work. You know, for a 30-foot hedge of them, you probably spend 30 minutes a year pruning on them, and uh, you get the benefit of a vigorous plant and a fast grower and a reasonable price. So you think that would be um, the best little shrub to put there for a well, foundation? You know, everybody's everybody's situation is different. Is this uh, sunny or shady? Uh, morning sun. Okay. And a little bit of afternoon, but not that much. There are, of course, lots of choices. Uh, Nandina are one of the toughest, hardiest, most trouble-free plants that you could plant. Some people don't like them. Some people don't like the berries on them, and uh, I've never found it to be the case, but I've had people say the berries are very toxic to the birds. That hasn't been my experience, but um, I, I, they're, you know, they're, they're other good plants. Dwarf Burford holly is a plant worth looking at that stops at about four feet, glossy dark green leaves and red berries in the winter months. Uh, there are Oh, gosh, I don't think that's quite enough light for Abelia, but uh, they're, uh, they're... Well, other... I'm wanting fast-growing, <laughs> because I am tired of messing with these Nandinas. Well, but see, you, you want fast growth, but you want us to stop when it gets to four feet. And, you know, that's, uh, that, that's asking a lot. There are some very fast-growing things, um, but, but then they're going to want to, they're just not going to want to stop at four feet. They're going to well, go on and be six or ten. Well, it's a 12-foot area, so, uh -huh. you know, long, so, you know, I could go higher, taller, you know, and, and cut it back. That wouldn't be a problem. Well, again, I think Dwarf Burford would be a good choice, and there are two or okay. three other hollies that you could look at. Um, okay. I still love the old green pittosporum. Uh, green pittosporum is a beautiful plant, fragrant flowers in the spring, and it grows fairly quickly. Um, they want to get bigger, but Xylosma, X-Y-L-O-S-M-A, Xylosma is one of the fastest growing plants out there. And I, you would you'd be a challenge to keep it at four feet, but if you can let it get five or six feet tall, Xylosma would be an excellent choice uh, that you could put in that area. I don't think yeah, I go they, with... They didn't make it during the freeze. <laughs> well, I, I hate to say it, but they're very... Very few things that dependably made it. The Nandinas were one of the things, but even a lot of the hollies that we thought had survived, uh, now that we've got this super hot summer weather, I can't tell you how many sick hollies I've looked at that are still suffering from the freeze. They made it through last summer real well because it was a wet, mild summer. But a lot of right. things that we, that we thought had survived the freeze just fine are not looking so good in this hot summer. So, um I don't know. So you, you, know think, you, you think that these Gulf streams just, uh, I might be better off replacing. That's that they're just, depends. Yeah. If you like the way they look and you're patient, leave them. You've already got them in there. They're growing. They are a well, tough Well, they're not party growing plant. very much. They're just sort of sitting there. Well, give That's them. my concern. I would, I would fertilize them. I'd start feeding maybe oh, every two weeks with something like Medina's Has to Grow Fertilizer. This is not the best time of year. You can plant this time of year, 
But I would start feeding real regularly. I'd be sure they're getting a very thorough watering at least once a week. And then let's okay. look at them about October or November when we're really getting into the time that's the best time to replace and replant if you're going to. Uh, okay. If they're not looking better by November, if they're not satisfying you, then I'd think about pulling them out and replacing them. But right now in early June and what looks like it's going to be a very hot, dry summer, I'm not going to advise you to pull them out and replace them with the weather the way it is now. I wouldn't replace them till fall anyway. So let's sort of put them in intensive care for the summer months, and then we'll make okay. the decision of whether to pull the plug on them or not when the fall rolls around. Okay. Hey, thanks so much, Bob. I appreciate your advice. Well, it's always a pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be uh, Thomas and Omar and Ethan and Terry, and Thomas is up first. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, sir. Uh, these fertilizer injectors that you put on, you know, in between the holes. Uh-huh. I heard you mention the other day about them. Uh, would, would that work with, uh, like with molasses, like if you want to spray your yard with molasses? Well, that's what I was talking with the caller about earlier. I, you would have to get a fairly dilute or a fairly liquidy molasses. I mean, some like some of your blackstrap molasses is so thick, especially on a cold day, that it just oozes along. But um, it would be a matter of just really trying some different kinds of molasses. Now, this time of year when the weather is so hot, uh, your molasses should go through that sprayer without any problem, maybe with just a slight amount of dilution. Middle of the winter, I doubt that they're going to work very well. But this time of year, uh, I, if you choose right molasses, uh, I think you'll probably be just fine. I use Medina's liquid molasses periodically. I've not tried putting it through my hose in uh, or my siphoner, so uh, maybe I need to try it. But I, I suspect it's going to work like it is. If not, I'm going to you know, cut it with water a little bit, but uh, uh, like I say, in the heat, I think it's probably going to work just fine. Well, can you govern how much uh, the dilution rate is? Or Well, that depends on how fancy your system is. If you're buying the $20 hose in uh, or the uh, siphon mixer, no, it mixes at 16 to 1. Uh, if you're willing to spend about $200 for a dosatron or a dosmatic proportion, or yes, you can be very precise and you can uh, have just almost an infinite number of settings uh, for how much you mix in. But for the homeowner, uh, the one that you're going to buy at the nursery for about 20 bucks, no, it's always going to mix at 16 to 1. Um, do you have a preference on that? Or? Well, I, again, uh, I, I, use the, I use the $20 model in my greenhouse. Uh, we have here at the nursery, we actually have one of the fancier ones that is already mounted on a cart that has a tank, uh, you know, mounted with it because considering the amount of fertilizing we have to do periodically, it was worth spending about $350 to get a good system like that. But for average use at home, no, that $20 siphon mixture is all you need. What brand would you, would you use for the $20 one? You know, I'd have to go look and see what we've got on the shelf. I want to say that it's DRAM. I'm not 100% certain. But I'm pretty sure oh, you it's do, you do I'm sorry? 
You do sell them yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've sold them for ever since, for as long as I've known them. But I think D-R-A-M-M, I'm pretty sure that's what the brand is, but uh, that's all the way at the other end of the building. So I can't can't lay the microphone down and run down there and look, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's Graham. Yeah. I understand. Uh, Another thing real quick, uh, my wife wants me to plant some uh, vinca Mm -hmm. and periwinkles. Uh, you know, being in the heat, can I just, uh, I got some bare ground that I solarized a oh, mm-hmm. year or so ago, and there's nothing there hardly. Can I just sprink, uh, get a coating of, uh, like, some good compost and just throw them seeds out and, and you know, rent I, them in? Yeah, you're going to be better to buy plants than to try to do it from seed, Thomas. Vinca loves the heat. Uh, but uh, this late in the season, it's going to be a little bit of trouble to get them to germinate, get up, get up blooming well before the summer's over. But uh, especially if you can find a series called Cora, C-O-R-A, comes in a lot of different colors. But uh, they do not mind the heat. Uh, once they're established, they, you know, they don't take extra water. They have to be watered regularly. But uh, right. what we call Madagascar Periwinkle or Vinca is an absolutely wonderful summertime plant, but uh, you waited awfully late to try it from seed. I think you're probably going to uh, go get some little plants and plant them, and as long as you take care of them, they'll be beautiful up till freezing weather this winter. Okay. You know what? <clears throat> you were talking about rats earlier. If you want to want to watch something that's pretty entertaining, there's a guy on YouTube that he has a business where he has minks. The trained minks, plus he has some terriers, and they go. He goes around these big, uh, like dairies, you know, who have a lot of rats. Uh huh. And then you, know, you ought to see the way them them minks are trained. They go in the places that the dogs can't. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it is. It's fun to watch. Yeah, minks and ermine and ferrets. Yeah. Uh, those are all little rodents. I've actually encountered them in the wild up in Wyoming. And uh, they were trying to uh, do away with some of the little chipmunks that we were feeding around the campsite when we were way back camped, way up in the mountains. So uh, they are interesting things. I did not know anybody was using them for that purpose. Now, a friend of mine up in uh, in New Braunfels is in the birdseed business. Uh, he has feral cats. He deals with a uh, feral cat rescue organization, and uh, he's got uh, some cats that live in his warehouse that keep the rats and mice under control. And he says uh, the cats come out and work all night, eliminating the rats and mice, and then they just go find a, you know, a, a out-of-the-way spot to sleep where people don't bother them during yeah. the day. So uh, uh, it's a, I know uh, there's something here in San Antonio called the Feral Cat Coalition. And uh, a lot of people, um, a lot of farmers and ranchers, insist on having you know, a, a barn cat around for that purpose because cats are very effective uh, predators. But unfortunately, uh, sometimes it's just simply not a safe, uh, not a safe place for them to be in around your home with traffic and everything else. But uh, uh, there, there are a lot of things. The, the rats, like I said earlier, are are important part of the food chain for a lot of creatures. And uh, there's some innovative people that will find a way to uh, fill a niche and. Uh, it sounds like this uh, having the train make. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that idea because they are very effective predators. 
Yeah, they can go go where the rats go. I mean, they're, they're so slender, you know, they can... Oh, yeah. ...get in these tight, tight places. Yes, sir. Well, okay, Bob. Well, thanks for being there. Always oh, a pleasure. Get yourself some Cora Vinca, and you'll make your wife happy, Thomas. It'll be a great time to plant well, them. I, and, uh, I made this gardening as my, part of my rehab. Well, it sounds like you're doing well with it. You keep up the good work. Have a happy Father's Day. And let me move on and try to get Omar in here before the news break. Good morning, Omar. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? Off to a good start. It's another nice Sunday out there. Just going to get hot this mm-hmm. afternoon. Yeah, I'm off to a late start. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I have <clears throat> lost 15, all 15 of my big fruited tomatoes to, it's either powdery, powdery mildew or blight. Like, I don't know which one it is, but it probably blight. You know, it's got, it, and it, does it, uh, there's a spider, there's a web around a lot of those leaves as well. Is that characteristic of, of blight? No, no, that is a little small, it's not an insect, it's a mite. Uh, if you get a magnifying glass, you'll see hundreds or thousands of them in there. And uh, they are a big issue for tomatoes and many other plants. Uh, next time, if you'll start spraying your plants with some regularity with liquid seaweed, it toughens the leaves where the mites will not be a problem. But what you're looking at is called red spider mite, and there's also false spider mite, two-spotted mite. But uh, they will, the leaves just look bleached out. They're tiny little things, but you get a million of them working. They'll just drain the sap out of your plants. Yeah, they're they're all every every one of them's got it now. But uh, and this if, is the first year I've mulched. Does that have anything? And I've never had it this bad. This no, blight. no, it's it's the hot, dry weather that really supports the mites. If you get some of that um, spinosad soap that we talk about, uh, my mm-hmm. business partner had a bad infestation on some ornamental oxalis she was growing, and one or two sprayings totally control the mites, and that plant's back to being beautiful again. So if your plants aren't just hopelessly gone. Get a little sprayer of uh, spinosad soap, and you'll knock the mites down in a hurry. And then in the future, just be hitting them with uh, liquid seaweed. Mola- or I, I use seaweed molasses, but even just the seaweed, and that will work on a preventive basis to keep them from ever getting started. Gotcha. And uh, I finally found my water results from from laboratory test here a while back. Where you know we've got real high TDS water here, and I was wondering if I could use it. But the sodium level is ninety nine point eight ppm. Um, that, can I use you're going to, you know, you're, you're probably, I don't know where to tell you to find a list, but at that rate, you're going to have some plants are going to be affected. You're going to have burn leaf margins mm-hmm. and things like that. Others are going to do just fine. Uh, give yourself a, a Father's Day trip to the coast to do a little fishing or something and look around at everything you see growing in Rockport and Corpus and things like that. You can bet that those are the things that are going to be the most salt tolerant, yeah. and uh, they'll do fine Tomatoes. on your well water there. But Tomatoes, pepper specifically. Yeah, they you're going to do you're going to do okay with them, uh, but they're not going to be as happy as they would with a lower sodium content. Listen, I'm going to get Chris to put you on a hold, Omar. We can talk more after the news here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. Two one zero five nine nine fifty five fifty five. 
All right, back to gardening. Actually, I'm going to take uh, about a minute here before we get back to phone calls and uh, tell you uh, once again about this event that's happening next Saturday out at the Shrine Auditorium out there on Loop 1604. Several different pet rescue organizations have gotten together. They're calling this a Rescues United Adoption Event. I think I counted a dozen, 12 or 13 different uh, participating organizations. But they're having just a great, great uh, pet adoption day, special prices. And the prices include, uh, of course, your new your new forever friend and all the vaccinations, spaying or neutering at the appropriate time, microchip. Uh, all of this is going on. And it's, uh, it's next Saturday from 11 to 6 out at the Shrine Auditorium. If you're looking for a new forever friend, a puppy kitten, adult cat, adult dog, really need to check this out. Uh, don't really have a phone number to give you, but you can probably Google. I need to try this and be sure. But it's called Rescues United Adoption Event next Saturday out at the Al Safar. All right, let's get back to phone lines, and uh, we've got time for a little more time with Omar. Welcome back, Omar. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, I was going to ask him, you know, like I said, I'm pulling those tomato plants and, and going to get ready for the um, – I've got some seed left over from a year or two ago. I'm going to see what, what kind of germination rate I get out of them and, and get ready for a, a fall tomato. Very, very good. Um, uh, what, uh, is there a soil prep I can do for blight and powdery mildew right now after I get these plants out of there? Most important thing is just uh, cornmeal. You can uh, – I would just sprinkle it fairly liberi- liberally on the surface – Wet it down to activate the trichoderma and to make it less attractive to birds and other things. And as you plant, and I realize that's probably six weeks away, but uh, when you get ready to plant, I'd probably make another application, uh, and then you'll just be sort of working that into the soil as you go. It's not a time of year I'm going to tell you to work the soil a lot, because when you bring your organic material up to the surface, it just oxidizes so rapidly in the heat. Uh, but if it were my garden, yeah, I'd put some cornmeal down now and water it. And then when I get ready to plant my fall tomatoes, I'd put a fresh application on and just figure I'm going to work some of it in as I go. Gotcha. All righty, sir. Well, I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the call. You have a happy Father's Day, and I know we'll talk again. Thank you, Thank you sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Next in line is Ethan. Good morning, Ethan. Good morning. Good, sir. It's uh, good to talk to you Um uh, I think I missed last weekend or maybe even the weekend before last. So I have um, <laughs> uh, two properties out there uh, out there in Bigfoot and then one here in Divine. And uh-huh. uh, my peacock tree is doing really good. I, I called for some advice on that one. So, so I'm glad I didn't uh, trim those um, those mulberries or, or, uh, and wait, wait, waiting to transplant until next season. However, that's not the reason I'm calling. The reason I'm calling today is um, I have an um, adolescent, if you will, um, or between adolescent and adult um, crepe myrtle. And I did some, some, um, some pruning to it and I did not crepe murder it. Um, Good. <laughs> I, I did, it, did it the right way, <laughs> and uh, now I, I, I um, have been watering it for about the last three weeks. You know, hefty water at a time, you know, once a week, and um, yeah. now I have these dead cutter ants. And since since these blooms came out, I was real happy about all my blooms uh, um, about three days ago. But now I woke up this morning, half of my tree is gone, half yeah. of my blooms are gone, and um, I put some some um, some. Um, some uh, orange oil around there, some Medina around the base, right. and, um, right. and and I, I don't know what else I, I can do to, to try to turn out other than trying to, to dispatch every single little ant that I see, and I'm calling them for some advice on that one. Well, there there are a couple of different ways to deal with the leaf cutting ants, and uh, if you can find the mound. Then you can treat them with water, with spinosad. 
Another thing you can do is put out some of this material that is called Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O, Sluggo Plus. And we've had several very good reports that people were able to control the cut ants with that. Now, in the meantime, this crepe myrtle, does it have multiple trunks? How big a plant is it? It's it's uh, it's about seven and a half to to eight foot tall, uh, and and, and uh, there's three main trunks that w- which are about no more than two and a half inches in diameter each one of them. Okay, there is a product out there. In fact, there are a couple of products. It used to be sold under the name of Tangle T A N G A G L E Tangle Foot. It is the stickiest thing that you have ever dealt with. I mean, it makes axle grease look like hand lotion. But you okay. don't uh, you don't apply it directly to the bark. <clears throat> Some people do, but we've seen, especially in the heat, sometimes it causes a little bit of abnormal growth. But you can take, uh, you, if you have three trunks, you either take three pieces of plastic wrap or three pieces of aluminum foil, wrap those around the trunk, maybe uh, an area six inches wide or so, you take your tangle foot and you smear it onto, and, and I like aluminum foil. It's just uh, stiffer and easier to sure. deal with. But you put a band of this around a couple of inches wide, and the ants simply cannot walk across it. If you did just a little narrow band, the ants will. I have a mulberry tree that I did something similar, but I, 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 you know that aluminum foil tape, the real sticky yeah. on the edge? Yeah. Uh, I, I used the same thing, but on my mulberry tree, and man, it was crazy the amount, amount, of, um, amount of ants that got stuck on them, but the, the amount of ants that got stuck on them so much, they just started walking over each other. Well, that's why you make a little wider band. You don't just make a narrow band, but um, it, it tends to make the cut ants just go somewhere else. And that okay. will, like I say, I'd, I'd use a one-two punch. I'd, I'd put that on immediately because that's going to stop the damage. By the time yeah. they figure a way to get around it, Hopefully you can have uh, found the mound and taken care of it, either with the Sluggo Plus or with the, uh, you know, water and spinosad or something like that. Water, spinosad, Sluggo, and the foil tape around there. That's what I would do. But uh, And I'll I'll go look. I know there's a new name to it, but uh, uh, use just a tongue depressor or popsicle stick or something like that to smear this stuff on. And uh, you can make a band. I mean, you can make a band of it five inches wide around there. And it stays on. Even moderate rainfall doesn't wash it off. So no. uh, it will do the job for you. Very good. And one, one more thing before I, before I let you go. I, I, um, I told uh, many years ago about some worm bins and some worm castings and stuff. And I started my worm yeah. bins, and they are eating by, uh, viraciously. So um, I'm, I'm looking uh, looking forward to my worm casting. My home crafted out of cardboard and uh, cardboard and food scrap and all that good stuff and yeah. aged, aged, uh, aged manure. So that's, uh, I'll, I'll be calling back pretty soon with a report on that, hopefully. Well, you'll be telling me how wonderful how wonderfully your plants are doing, I'm sure. that's There's very little in the world better than worm castings as far as creating a great uh, they're, medium. They're the best employees. They're the they, best employees, I tell you what. You know, they, they, they don't call in sick or nothing. <laughs> and all they need is a little water and food every now and then, and they don't complain loudly, so... Uh, uh, you're doing a good thing, and I think you're going to find it make a, a very positive effect on your garden. So uh, get out there today. Well, it's my pleasure. Get those uh, ants under control, and uh, you have a happy Father's Day, and I will move on and say good morning to Terry. How's Terry this morning? Uh, good morning, Bob. I'm fine. How are you doing out there? Off to a good start. Well, good. Um, I've got a question on floor pan. Um 
I was watching the grass earlier this year and it started turning yellow and I thought just little spots and I thought maybe it's because I was wasn't watering but the spots have gotten bigger and the grass has died I grab the grass and pull it up there's no roots to it yeah uh, tell me what I should have done you should, probably should have put out you should have put out beneficial nematodes for grub worms uh, Floratam yeah. Floratam is our most sun tolerant St. Augustine and uh it is a tough, tough, hardy grass, but and uh, it's resistant to chinch bugs. That's one of the reasons it was developed for use along the coast. But it is very susceptible to grubworm damage, and of course, the, you know the June bugs are what lay the eggs, and then the little bitty first and second larval instars really get after the roots of the St. Augustine. Now, the the grubs that did the damage are probably through feeding. They're probably sitting there six inches down in the soil waiting for the chance to turn into June bugs and spread the problem. But I would still, as soon as we get a decent amount of moisture, however that happens, uh, to get the soil wet, I would go ahead and make an application of beneficial nematodes because we're not out of grubworm season yet, and the uh, past couple of years we've had a second flight of June bugs in July and August that, that really did severe damage to the grass. But the soil has to be moist. Uh, little uh, nematodes, as they say, they don't walk, they swim, so they need to go on moist soil. But uh, if you have a small yard and you can water thoroughly, then you can go ahead and put them out. But at this point, uh, fertilizer, regular watering, if you have any really well-finished compost, has no heat to it whatsoever, it's uh, pretty much just thoroughly decomposed, uh, thin layer of, uh, of compost or those worm castings that Ethan was just talking about, that sort of thing will very definitely help your grass fill back in those bare areas. I hate to tell you, it's probably going to look worse before it looks better because you probably have runners of grass there that the roots have been cut, but they haven't started browning out yet. So. Don't be surprised if it gets a little bit worse before it gets better. But uh, nematodes will stop the grubs and fertilizer, water, a little bit of finished compost. Those things will start the grass growing back into the areas that were damaged. Yeah, it's in a small area, so maybe I could um, treat that small area with the nematodes and keep watering it in, hand-watering it in. But that would probably be a suggestion. That would be a very good suggestion, yes, sir. Well, that's what I'm going to probably be doing to get some nematodes and get after and if, with the water hose. Yeah, if you can, get the live ones on the Little Blue Sponge. They're sold in several different forms. I find the ones, we get them from a company called Hydra Goddard and stuff in Colorado Springs. But look around and see if somebody in your area has the live ones. If not, the dry ones are somewhat effective. But if you can find the live ones on the Blue Sponge, those are the ones that really, really do work the best. So... Uh, get your soil good and moist, get your nematodes out, and uh, fertilizing and watering, you'll stop the damage in the grass. Floratam's a great grass in the sunny spots. It will very definitely start filling in those areas pretty soon. Okay, Bob, thank you. I appreciate it. We'll see you later. Well, it's my pleasure, Terry, and uh, you have a happy Father's Day out there. Oh, I'm going to go attack some nematodes. I'll feel better. <laughs> Sounds like a good thing. I know. We'll talk again. Hi to your family. And it uh, uh, looks like, Chris, I guess we better get a break in here. Al's up next, but uh, let's get this commercial break out of the way, and Al's be up first. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. 
All right, back to gardening. I actually have a Mary and then a Mary Kay. So just, uh, I'm not going to say plain old Mary, but just Mary by herself. Uh, good morning, Mary. How can I help you today? Good morning, Bob. That's funny. My middle name is only K also. But... <laughs> well, I've known some very, very wonderful ladies named Mary Kay in my life, so uh, I'm glad to talk to you. <laughs> I think I, I think I hear a, a, a man's voice in the background, so uh, lucky man. <laughs> well, I was cleaning my, my potter's bench, and I came across a bag of some Esperanza seed pods. Uh-huh. You know, the, the ones that look like the vanilla beans? Right, right. And is it too late to try and do something with those? or And if not, what's the best way to go about that? Was this the big old yellow Esperanza that they came off of? Yes, sir. Okay, here's the story on that. I would not recommend that you plant them. If you do, they probably will grow. But the old common yellow Esperanza bloomed with little clusters of flowers, probably four or five flowers at the most, and it had a relatively short bloom season. A good horticulturist, I think it was actually Greg Grant, found, and I'm not sure where it was, I don't even know if it was in this country, but he found a yellow Esperanza, which the blooms it had, they had 12 or 15 in a cluster, and they bloomed over a very, very long period of time. Uh, He named that that cultivar Gold Star, and it has been propagated from cuttings to where it is now the one that is usually sold in the nursery. So if you want a really beautiful Esperanza, you're better to take a cutting of a plant than to collect the seed. Because of the genetic variability, chances are these seeds, at least a high percentage of them, would go back to being the old-fashioned one that had fewer flowers and bloomed less. So Esperanza is not one of those things I rarely recommend propagating from seed. Now, some of the newer dwarf varieties, uh, yeah, I think it'd be fun that we can increase some of the diversity there. But on that one, you're simply going to probably get an inferior plant if you plant it from seed, whereas Esperanza roots very easily from cuttings. Go uh, go sneak a cutting or two off of a good plant somewhere around, and you'll have a plant that's really worth growing, if that makes sense. So just uh, just cut it and maybe put it in some root stimulator and then uh, let it go most, from there? Uh, most of the time, uh, cuttings are rooted uh, in perlite, perlite's a white volcanic material you're probably familiar with. Uh, you can also use clean sand. Don't root in water. That's what our grandmothers and grandfathers did. But plants rooted in water form a whole different type of root that then dies and start over when you move, put it into soil. So uh, fill a pot or two with perlite. Take your cutting, keep them short, maybe three inches long. Uh, rather than any kind of root stimulator, I would soak the cuttings briefly, 10-15 minutes, uh, in a mixture of either liquid seaweed or garret juice with a little bit of extra seaweed added to it. Uh, Then put them maybe a third of the cutting down in the perlite, two-thirds up above. Keep them moist, uh, mist them if you can, and within two, three, four weeks they should start putting on plenty of roots, and lo and behold, you've got a new Gold Star Esperanza to grow and plant. So is it straight perlite, or is it a mixture of perlite and... Um, no, just just straight uh, perlite. Is It's straight perlite because we want a sterile medium, and perlite is a sterile medium. It's a volcanic ore that's heated up. It pops like popcorn. But when you take a cutting, 
it's a race between that cutting be able being able to form roots and natural decomposing microbes in the soil trying to break it down and turn it into compost. So some you know some things root so quickly we can root them directly in soil. But things that are woody that take a little bit longer to form their roots, we give them a big head start if we put them in a sterile environment, so to speak, where you don't have all these decomposing microbes and they're trying to break them down at the same time they're trying to grow. As soon as they start forming roots, you can take them out, transfer them to potting soil, or you can leave them in the perlite indefinitely so long as you keep giving some fertilizer along with water. But you'll just have a much higher percentage of success rooting in perlite than you will rooting in any other mixture. Oh, okay. Okay. Very good. Well, I will try that. So I'll just throw those little seed pods away, I guess, huh? I hate to tell you to do that, but uh, the, the this is one plant where it's just we have a strain of it that is so superior that that's, that's you know, the way that I'm going to recommend that you propagate it. And uh, at the same time, if you come across any of the orange ones or some of the new compact gold or the gold with the red center, there are some incredible new Esperanzas out there. So grab a cutting or two of those and uh, start some of them as well. You'll absolutely love them. I, I truly don't know of anything that is more dependable for color at this time of year and uh, so easy to grow. So um, you're doing a good thing. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Bob. And tell that male voice in the background, happy Father's Day. <laughs> oh yeah, he's got he's he's got his mouth full of eggs right now, so I'll, I'll let him know. <laughs> You're taking good care of him. You have a wonderful day, <laughs> and uh, we'll move on to uh, to Mary Kay. Good morning, Mary Kay. Hey, Bob. Happy Father's uh, Day, everybody out there, including yourself. Well, uh, thank you thank very you much for being here for us. My pleasure. My name is Mary Esther Condoff, but he wouldn't have remembered all that. And he said he already had another Mary, so I gave him Kate to add to it. <laughs> um, that's that's a good thing. Yes. Anyway, so I, I want to ask you a question about nematodes. Do they find the little grass bugs that are in the grasses? There are somewhere around 500,000 different kinds of nematodes. Um, some mm-hmm. of them are parasites of plants, some of them are parasites of animals. The great majority of them are just sort of benign. We don't really know what they do, either good or bad. And then there are a handful of them that target organisms that live in the soil. Uh, if you're buying mm-hmm. a good from a good company, they're actually not giving you just one kind of nematode. They're giving you at least five or six or seven. And they okay. target... Uh, just depending on what the nematode is, the principal things that they're combining for is they want a blend that's going to take care of fleas, going to take care of fire ants, going to take care of grub worms, and um, some of the hard-shelled things that live in the soil. They do not affect earthworms. They don't affect people or pets or anything else. So uh, things that spend their entire life up on the surface of the ground Nematodes are probably not going to do much against them. But things that spend at least a portion of their life in close contact with the soil, like grub worms, like fire ants, like uh, fleas, they are very, very effective in controlling them. Um, again, it has to be moist, so little nematode. They're, they're tiny. You can see them if you have real good eyes. You can certainly see them with a magnifying glass. You don't have to use a microscope. But uh, as long as they are able to move about in the soil, they will take care of a wide range of problems. And in some cases, uh, they actually kill the target 
organism by burrowing into it and reproducing inside of it. In other cases, where they have a bacteria on their outer surface, or cuticle as it's called, and as they burrow into the target organism, they introduce a bacteria which then kills that flea or that grub worm. So they're, they're very, very effective, but again, it's, it's pretty much on things that spend at least a part of their time in the soil, and yet, remarkably enough, they don't affect earthworms or fireflies or some of the good things that we like out there. I know they fight fleas because I've, I've got feral cats, and if anybody needs any, I've got a whole bunch of them. Uh, yeah, very and, good. and they don't seem to have fleas. My dogs yeah. don't have fleas, but they itch a lot when they go out into the grass and roll all over it. That's why I was wondering if, if they would chew those grass in the grasses. Um, uh, your yes, your phone's kind of breaking it. up. They, they don't do, you know, there are many things that they can pick up in the grass. As hot and dry as it is, chiggers are less of a problem than they were earlier. But there are various mites out there, and there are lots of allergens out there. Another 30 minutes or so, the best veterinarian I know will be on the air with me. And uh, we always talk about all the itching things, all the things that cause dogs to itch at this time of the year. Um, your nematodes aren't going to help all of them, but they'll certainly take care of the fleas and another number of the other things that, could cause problems for you pups. I appreciate your information, Bob. You're wonderful. You uh, have a my... wonderful Father's Day, and thank you so much for being here. Well, me. then thank you. It's my great pleasure, and uh, just enjoy sharing. So you get out and uh, enjoy your weekend as well. It's time for us to get another break in here, and then we'll be back with more phone calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on this wonderful Father's Day. We're going to talk to April and Brenda and Victor. We'll see how much time we have left in the show, but I know we'll get that far along. Good morning, April. Good morning. Um, I really enjoy your show, but I have a question for you. About six months ago, we planted some live oaks in our backyard. Okay. And I've been watering them every morning about, oh, 10, 15 minutes with a sprinkler. And um, then I noticed that we had a visitor from a porcupine. Uh And I noticed that he ate some of the bark off of the trees. Right. And so I went out and got some wire netting and put around them. But they still have the wound from him eating the bark. Is there anything I can do to save save them? How long ago did this uh, damage occur? About uh, a week. Okay. And has he eaten the bark all the way around the trunk or just part of the way around the trunk? Just part of it, more like um, a linear portion of it. Okay. The tree's going to survive and be fine. Um, I would go to Howard Garrett's website, dirtdoctor.com, and you'll find a recipe on there for what he calls tree trunk goop, G-O-O-P, very scientific word there, but very understandable. But um, it's the best thing we have found to cover a wound like that. If you don't have the tree trunk goop and you come out and suddenly find that the porcupines girdled a part of a tree, take a piece of tar paper or whatever and wrap it up. What you want to try to keep it from doing is drying out. One of my good arborist friends carries a a, a roll of uh, tar paper in his trunk and a hammer and some tacks, and because he gets called, somebody ran into a tree, somebody did this, that, or other to knock the bark off of it. So keeping keeping that area protected from the hot, drying wind is important. Uh, in, in your case, since it's not gone all the way around, the trees are almost certainly going to survive. It's going to set them back a little bit. But um, yeah. the best thing that you could possibly do 
would be to mix up some of the tree trunk goop and put it, slather it on there as soon as you see the damage. A week has passed. It's probably pretty much dried out, so I don't know that it would make a whole lot of difference to do it at this point. But unless you can uh, get rid of the porcupine, unfortunately, uh, he's probably going to do more damage. So you need to keep an eye out. Uh, porcupines climb. Porcupines are almost exclusively nocturnal. They do all their damage at night. But uh, Yeah, I you're... know. I, I caught him on camera. But even with the tree netting, do you think he'll still try to damage them? I it's two feet I, up. He may very well just climb over the wire or whatever and keep on going up uh porcupines it's they're weird creatures and uh you can actually trap them reasonably effectively if you have a live trap and the thing to bait it with is a chunk of salt uh you might go to a feed store or somewhere like that they you know they sell mm -hmm. blocks of salt like we ranchers mm -hmm. put out for our cattle and things maybe you can find a feed store that's got a just a piece of it broken off of something that they would just give you but anything really salty, um, and ask any backpacker, you know, you put your boots inside the inside the tent because if you've got them good mm -hmm. and sweaty and leave them outside, the boot, the porcupines will eat your boots when you're off in the woods, and that's not a good yeah. thing to happen. But uh, yeah. uh, do anything you can to trap that porcupine and, uh, you know, take him somewhere else or eliminate him or whatever, but they can be very destructive. Now, that live oaks are not their favorite tree. They love a native tree called Bumelia. Uh, they love our native Mexican buckeye. They uh, eat frequently on, on bodark trees. Uh, they will get after live oaks, but it's not their favorite one. So hopefully oh, this porcupine is, has moved on to something else. But um, if you see any more damage, I would, I would eliminate him one way or another. Yeah, I, okay. I don't say this often, but there are only two things I shoot on sight. One of them's porcupines, the other's wild hogs. And uh, they're, um, they're just very, very, very destructive. And somehow they always seem to go after our favorite trees. So uh, mm -hmm. do what you can to, uh, you know, to eliminate them because they, they certainly do kill trees. I'm, I'm glad they didn't curdle your trees all the way around because that would be much more problematic. But uh, in this case, your trees are going to survive and recover but let's just try to prevent further damage and have a little bit of the, and, and the tree trunk goop is some very simple things you just mix up and slather on. So it's something that I'd certainly keep handy. Might even some nurseries uh, have even sort of prepackaged it, but that's the best thing we found. And it's not just for porcupines, but, oh, somebody doesn't know what they're doing, gets out with a line trimmer and whips the bark off your trees, or you have a misfortune, mm -hmm. somebody runs off the street and knocks some bark off one of the trees in your front yard. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it's mm -hmm. just a great thing to be able to do to save the trees. Okay, well, thank you. Also, one more question. I noticed on the largest one, the leaves are starting to turn brown. Is that? Do you think that's part of the porcupine thing? Because I'm watering them daily. Okay. Well, it's probably you should be watering that often. But you need to be watering very, very thoroughly, even if these are fairly young trees. You don't mm -hmm. want to be watering too frequently because if you keep the soil too moist, this drives the oxygen out of the soil. And actually, lack of oxygen is what can do severe damage or even kill plants. So uh, how long have these trees been in the ground? About six months. 
Okay. Watering once a week should be plenty or, you know, no more than every four or five days. Just be sure when you water that you really, really water them thoroughly. If you want to do something every day or three times a day, pick up your hose and just spray up and down the trunks, up and down the limbs, because where they have that soft, you know, kind of gray smooth bark, they'll absorb a great deal of moisture directly through that bark, and nothing's going to help them get established faster than doing that. But as far as wetting the soil, do it really, really thoroughly, but then let it dry a bit before you water it again. Okay, very good. I have one more quick question. We okay. have crepe myrtles, and at the base, we trim them, the little new se- uh, new little branches coming up. Right, right. But is there something you can put on that so they don't keep coming up? Nope. Uh, the one thing you can do is be sure the root flare is exposed. I'd say close to 100% of the crepe myrtles that are sold are buried too deeply in the pot. It's simply it's easier for the grower to pot them that way. But you mm-hmm. ought to see the root flare actually spreading out from the base of the plant. If you get that root flare exposed, you will have fewer shoots come up at the base, but at least in the first two, three years of growth, you're going to be pretty active with your pruning shears cutting those little shoots off. Because basically, the grape myrtle would rather be a bush than a tree, but uh, it's a normal thing for them to do. But the more stressed they become, it's kind of like little shoots that come out on live oaks all over the tree, around the trees. Um, The stressed plant will put out a lot more of those, so... Be sure you're doing everything you can to minimize stress, which is proper watering and exposed root flare, but you're still going to have to do some trimming. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. There's a lot of good information. Appreciate it. My pleasure, April. Thank you. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Let's see. Next up. Yeah, we got time to take one more before we take our last break of the hour. Uh, Let's talk to Brenda. Hi. Yes, Bob. I was just looking at my... I have a, um, uh, I believe it's an antique rose. It's been here for a long, long time before I bought okay. the house. And anyway, it's just a tiny red rose. Uh, I Usually it, it does great, but I just noticed that it has like webs, like spider webs in it. Yeah, so uh, spider mites. Okay, so I should spray with a spinosad. Spinosad soap would be, and I would do it real soon. Uh, your little red rose is probably a variety called Martha Gonzalez. It is an uh-huh. outstanding, wonderful little rose. But when the weather gets really hot and really dry, uh, the you know uh, roses are one of the things that the spider mites really go after. So get that taken care okay. of as, as soon as you can. If it's a day or two before you can get out and get some spinosad soap, just take your hose and just blast that as hard as you can because these mites are really tiny. You knock them off the plant, they're probably never going to be able to get back up on it again. But I would spray, and then I'd spray about once a week for the next couple of weeks. Should get those uh, spider mites totally under control, and your Martha Gonzalez will do a lot better and bloom a lot more for you. Well, do you think it's uh, it's too late in the day to spray right now? Because uh, no. I have some spinosad soap. Uh, I, so I can... You have my permission to turn the radio up really loud so you can hear it and go out and go out and spray it right now. If you if if it were me. I probably would spray, but then I'd throw a sheet or throw some insulate or something over long enough for it to dry because it's not it's not like neem. It's not like an oil spray that's really going to burn, but um, yeah. especially, you know, lower part of the plants is naturally shaded by the top. Um, I guess ideally, take your hose out there, wash everything you can off, and then spray it this evening after, after the sun's uh, gone lower. And then spray in the evening. Okay, well, I'm going to go do that now. Thank you. You are certainly welcome. You have a wonderful Father's Day weekend, and uh, 
Tell the guys in your life, happy Father's Day. Thank you, Brenda. And, uh, Chris, let's get our last break done, and then we'll be back and move through the rest of our calls. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Do have an open line. Probably have time for a couple more calls. If you've got that question you just really want to get in today, uh, call right now, 210-599-5555. And it looks like I'm going to talk to Victor. Good morning, Victor. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you doing, sir? Off to a good Uh, start. Now, my question is, uh, I just bought some... uh, some este, what do you call it? You know, <laughs> can't think right now. The dove for the dove hunting, that bird seed. Oh yeah, maize. Uh huh. Yes, sir. I bought a like fifty pounds of it, and uh, like where I bought it with a Douglas seed. Douglas uh, King seed, seed, yeah. Yes, sir. Uh huh. And uh, the thing is that is it a good time to plant right now or not really? Well, it would have been a better time to plant it back in about April or so because, uh, you know, the maize fields are just now starting to grow and uh, and starting to produce. If you have an area that you can water it, um, yes, you can go ahead and plant it now, and uh, you should have some heads on it, you know, by September. Now, realize that you you can't you can't put that, just throw that out there, you know, on uh, August the 29th and hope you'll bring the dove in. That's illegal. That's baiting. But you can certainly grow maize to attract yeah. the doves. I've got too many friends that are game wardens, and I think they'd put me in jail if they caught me doing that. So wouldn't be doing that. But uh, I would get it planted. Well, as... it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, if anywhere that you can water, uh, yes, mm-hmm. you can plant it now, and you'll have a reasonable chance of getting a fairly good growth on it. This late in the season, there's a little insect called a midge, M-I-D-G-E, if you ever want to look it up, that will keep it from being as beautiful a crop as if it were planted earlier. But you're not growing this to harvest. You're you're growing this to attract supper. So uh, uh, you've got nothing to lose. But I'd only plant it where you'll be able to water, and I would do it as soon as you possibly can. Well, actually, I didn't buy it for doves. I bought it for my chickens because ah, okay. I live in Lytle, and, uh, man, it's super dry i guess like everywhere else in texas you know what i mean yes sir it's super dry and the, usually the fence line they usually have a little bit of green but we don't have no green at all not, not no. where we live. well i'm so i'm that, kind that of was, that was my reason for buying it yeah well uh, again your chickens will love it but if you want to try growing a bit of it uh you'll you'll see it you know it's one of the things that a lot of companies put in their bird seed mixes and it's not at all unusual to see it sprouting and growing underneath bird feeders around there so uh yeah you can grow it to feed your chickens if you like there's nothing at all wrong with that it's easy to grow but uh uh, again if you want to do it next year get it in the ground about the 15th of april and you'll well actually where you are maybe the first of april and uh, you'll have some good feed for your chickens or whatever else you're feeding with it. All right. That was a good question, and You have a, a great Father's Day. Thank you, sir, for your You answer. do the same, Victor. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. I uh, hope I'm pronouncing this right. I think uh, it's Leno. Uh, good morning, Leno. Good morning, sir. Happy Father's Day. Sorry you and had to work today. You as well. Well, you know, it's there worse things than working, despite what some people think. <laughs> I'm just blessed to be able to do something I enjoy. Okay, uh, I just have a, a a question about my uh, 
uh, trees. Uh, I heard you say one time about orange oil and vinegar. Can yes. I spray that around the trees? And would that hurt my trees? Not at all. For the, not at all. It only we, hurts. I, you don't don't spray it on the foliage of the trees, but uh, you can use it. And remember that killing grass and weeds and things like that, we're just coating it. We're not really soaking it. We're just spraying it on right, the foliage, right. and it'll kill it in fifteen minutes. But no, you can. Uh, you will not harm your trees one bit. If that wind comes up, wait till the wind dies down, so it's not spraying or not blowing it onto things that you don't want to kill. But no, you're perfectly safe to uh, spray vegetation underneath your trees. Won't bother your trees at all. And it is uh, one ounce uh, orange oil to a, a gallon of vinegar. Uh, usually about two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar. Okay. My next question was: I heard you say one time about uh, molasses and diesel will kill the mesquite stumps. Yes, sir. Right? The the diesel is what actually does the killing. Uh, the molasses just ki- just cleans it up. The molasses stimulates the microbes that actually break down diesel into more or less a fertilizer product. So it's the uh, it's and and they don't really mix together very well. If you're doing it at the same time, you have to keep shaking it or agitating it. Uh, but it is very effective against killing mesquite, killing weasatch, killing some of these really tough things. But um, you can either put the diesel on and then follow it up with the molasses, or you can actually do it at the same time as long as you keep it all stirred up or shaken up so that you're getting both of them out. Okay, and I do have to drill the stump or just put it no. over it? No, just put it over it. You know, a little small stump, a couple of cups are probably plenty. A great big stump, it'll take a little bit more. You just you just want to coat the stump and a little bit of the soil around it. How do you mix it for that stump? Uh, um, oh, you said you could do uh, diesel and then come in with the yeah. molasses, right? Yeah, the, the molasses okay, what, doesn't what? make the diesel work better. It just uh, cleans it up. It just uh, takes what? it out of the soil so you can go back and plant some else in that area in the future. What kind of molasses would I use? The cheapest you can find. Um, I use just the same straight. molasses. Yeah, the the stuff that goes in the my lick feeders for my cows. It's not you're not oh, looking okay. for quality. You're looking for price. Probably if you just need a little bit of it, a feed store is going to be your best source. If you need a lot of it, if you have any feed mills around that actually make cattle feed, you can sometimes right. buy it in a bigger jug for less money. Okay, no, there's a guy here in, in Carrizo that he, he fills up those molasses buckets. That's, you know, that's where I get mine, the fellow that fills my molasses uh, fittings for my cattle. Well, sir, I appreciate your time. Enjoy your well, weekend, and uh, like, I hope they're making a big barbecue for you. Well, I don't know about that, but, you know, I'll, I'll probably participate and may even do some of it myself. So uh, looking forward to the evening, and you have a great day, and uh, you enjoy, and I appreciate the call, Victor. You have a have a good Father's Day and a good Juneteenth. All right, uh, let's see. No, that was actually uh, Leno. Uh, next up, and yeah, we've got plenty of time here. We're going to talk to Teresa. Good morning, Teresa. Hi. Good morning, Bob. Happy Father's Day to you. Thank you um, very much. I have a question. I have um, those big, beautiful green plants that they call them elephant ears. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. And they're big and be- and they're beautiful and nice and green. But something seems to be munching on the leaves. What do you think I need to do to the plant? Um, well, first of all, we got to figure out what's doing the munching. Do you have grasshoppers? Yeah. Grasshoppers? Um, not really. Not really. Okay. I have, um, 
I did. I've seen a toad and I seen some frogs around, but no, that's no, about they, it. No, they're they're your friends. They're eating the bugs. Okay. I sus- <laughs> I suspect if you don't have grasshoppers, it is probably a caterpillar of some sort. Because uh, various of the caterpillars, they they do like eating on the elephant ears. There is a non yeah, there's a non toxic product. Uh, it's called BT, stands for Bacillus thuringiensis. It's a bacteria that won't hurt the toads or frogs or pets or people or anything else, but it's great uh-huh. for killing caterpillars. And I would just get some BT, mix it up according uh-huh. to directions. Now, this is one place if you add a little bit of molasses to it, it'll make it even more effective. Yeah. But just late in the afternoon, spray your elephant ears with that. Uh, that should stop the problem. The caterpillar takes one bite out of a leaf that has the BT on it. It stops feeding immediately and dies within a few hours. So that's one of the easiest problems to solve out there. The uh, And it, it probably is caterpillars. If you see any kind of shiny-looking areas around the damage, it could be snails or slugs. Uh, and if it's snails or slugs, you you can use a product uh, they call Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O. But uh, my number two suspect would be caterpillars. The uh, BT will take care of them. It could, like I say, be snails or slugs, and the sluggo or sluggo plus either one. That will totally eliminate well, your snails and slugs safely. Well, the BT take care of the slugs as well? No. BT does only oh, caterpillars. Okay. And the stuff oh, that, the uh, yeah, the sluggo that does the snails and slugs won't kill the caterpillars. So uh, yeah. one thing you can do is go out at night with a flashlight. They're doing most of their damage at night, so you could probably go out after dark with a flashlight and catch them in the act and figure out which one it is. Very good. I'll do that. Um, and one more fast uh, question. Um, I have these in huge pots. They're really huge pots. Uh-huh. And I have a fern in another one, and it's beautiful green fern. And I have it under my porch, and it looks really beautiful. My porch looks really nice. But my fern is really growing big. Uh-huh. Can I cut into it? Yes. Yes, you you can divide it. It probably is a Boston fern of some sort, uh, and it is a true fern. It's not the so-called asparagus fern, but it is a true fern. Yeah, you no, can it's cut a true it. Fern, yeah. yeah, I something like that when it outgrows its pots. I will normally cut it into four pieces, and the center okay. portion, right in the center of the pot, is probably going to be dead. Probably not going to have a lot of live frogs. But just take yeah. it out of the pot. Cut it in thirds, cut it in fourths, break out that little bit of a dead center, repot it, yes. and now you'll have uh, a pot for yourself and more to share with your friends. Very good. Thank you so very much, Mr. Bob. You have a super day. You do the same, and thank you for the call this morning.